This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What do you do when you have a loved one who struggles with mental health or addiction issues? What I can recommend to you is you give us a call at Cash Centers. We're in network with most insurance providers. We're also out of network with a bunch of insurance providers. And even if your loved one or you is not appropriate for us, we will make a recommendation in your local city or hometown with the extensive resources that we have. So go to castcenters.com. That's C-A-S-T, centers.com. Check us out, give us a call, and we'll help you find the right resources. All right, guys, so I have someone here. It's our first psychiatrist that we've had Mm -hmm. on Always Evolving. I think I've had over 120 episodes, and this is the first psychiatrist. And she's been a friend of mine for what, Stacey, how long? Probably almost 10 years. 10 years? (laughs) Dr. Stacey Cohen. You would never know she's a psychiatrist. if you had a overgeneralizing idea of what a psychiatrist looks like <laughs> and acts like and behaves like, but I just want to have a conversation with you. We spoke a week ago and you were like, what do you want to talk about? And I said, you know, I want to talk about medication. You were like, I want to talk about people who are now microdosing. <laughs> and so I thought we could just, you know, connect. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it comes up in every dinner conversation I'm at now. Everyone wants to know about psychedelics and what's going on. With what is your take on psychedelics? Well, I think I think in general, we're us psychiatrists are basically armed with a bag of tools, and our tools have not been strong enough to treat everything we're trying to treat. You know, if you look at cardiology or if you look at orthopedic surgery, like basically anything that's broken can be fixed. Um, Mm. Then you maybe fine tune, you get meds that work a little bit better, you get devices that work a little bit better, but everything's pretty fixable. Um, When you you look at mental illness, we have a toolbox that's very small, we're pretty ill-equipped, and we've been using very similar medications for a very long time. You know, they came out with Prozac and then Zoloft and Lexapro, and then it was just like, a boom of serotonin related agents. They added a little bit, you know, of norepinephrine in there, right. the dopamine. But now, because of the psychedelic psychedelic revolution, which really isn't a revolution because this happened in the 70s and before that and before that. Um, but now we're looking at totally different areas of the brain, different receptor mechanisms. So I think that's wonderful. Mm. But like like anything, when tools are in the wrong hands or when they're used widely on everybody or when they're seen as a panacea, they're typically dangerous. So, Have you ever done ayahuasca? 
I never did. I almost I never did chickened either. out. I never did. <laughs> no, you're not interested in throwing up. And... I don't know. I'm really not interested in throwing up. That's a really good way of summarizing it. And, and some other things associated with it. So. Yeah, that's that. So, so you have a booming practice in an outpatient. You've seen thousands of patients through the years, when you say? Yes, absolutely. And what do people, people, when they walk in, typically, what is the conversation they have with you? You know, people come in with a wide variety of sort of expectations or things they're asking for or things they're struggling with, anywhere from relationship issues to a side effect of a medication to I've never tried medications to I can't sleep, I can't pay attention. I mean, my weight's changing, all sorts of things. Mm. Addiction, I, I'm, I specialize in addiction. So I can't say there's one thing that people come in for, but I think in general, people people are just struggling to function mm. in some way, if I had to summarize it. And is the struggling to function usually their lifestyle or dark thoughts or what? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I've worked I've worked the gamut of of functionality, so to speak. Um, mm. So I have worked with patients, you know, that can barely, you know, execute their activities of daily living, like taking a shower or paying their bills or going to work. And then I've worked with patients who are running massive companies who can function very highly, but they feel like they can't or they mm. feel or or they're doing something secretive that isn't aligned with, you know, the values they they are putting out into the world and they feel wrong about that. So it really runs from like physical maladies to spiritual maladies to emotional maladies, but all, all sorts of sort of levels of functioning. I'm currently on medication. I've gone through periods where I'm on no medication. I don't feel any shame around it. Mm -hmm. I think it's like I'm on a drug called Trintilix. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's one of the newer ones. The newer it's ones, I guess. One, yeah. yeah. But I, um, I've found that it's interesting because sometimes it's really hard to figure out if depression is because of isolation or because of a breakup or because of a loss or if it's really an imbalance. Because medication, for the most part, is for imbalances, right? Or no? Or, or is it more like a Kickstarter? It kind of depends. I mean, we're all we're all prone to having periods of our lives that are harder than others, and I wouldn't say that that for sure, you know, makes it a clinical diagnosis. And then the question becomes like, if things are hard, when is the tipping point? When should a medication be used? I don't think there's a black and white answer to that. But basically, the way I sort of describe it to my pa patients, the analogy I like to use is when we're depressed, for example, or really anxious or, you know, can't concentrate or have some sort of functional difficulty, it feels after a while like we're stuck in a well and we can't get out of it. And the question is, like, can therapy get us out? And I see therapy as like climbing a ladder to get yourself out. You mm. know, it takes one step at a time. It can take weeks. It takes a while. Uh, sometimes people can't even get to the ladder to start climbing or they don't have the energy to climb or they can't reach it. So I like to see medications as a little boost to get there. It doesn't do all the work for you um, and it doesn't work for everybody, but it's it's one tool we have just like exercise is a tool we have just like, you know, sometimes spirituality or socializing mm. or other sorts of activities of interest are tools we have. Medications, one of those tools, but sometimes like Nothing will work but medication. And what are yeah? What are some of the tougher patients when you when they walk in? You're like, oh, this is tough to treat and to figure out. 
Are there certain types of patients? That's an interesting question. So I'll say there's some patients that respond quickly and easily to medications and it makes a huge difference. But I don't see myself as a psychiatrist. I mean, these days, a lot of times psychiatrists are strictly psychopharmacologists, but that's not how I was trained. Right. I was trained in psychotherapy. I was trained in different sort of holistic modalities as well as medications. I was also trained to sort of be the conductor of a larger mental health team. So, you know, I'd say some of the trickier patients are, well, one, patients who don't want to get better because a lot sometimes patients come because others urge them to or they lose their license or either their driver's license or their professional license. So sometimes there's like personality components or disorders in place that either make people resistant to change or, you know, allow people to continue doing bad behaviors over and over or, or maladaptive behaviors over and over. And that sort of hasn't been identified. So I think one, patients who are resistant to change or not interested in change are very tough to treat. There's some biological mental illnesses like schizophrenia where we just know the numbers aren't great. Mm. It doesn't, I, I don't know that they're in my head particularly tough to treat, but they create a sort of tough challenge for the people around them and for their own, you know, independence. But, you know, I think a lot of it has to do when it comes to difficulty treating someone has to do with their sort of interest and willingness to get better. Have you ever been burnt out? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I have been burnt out. Yeah. I mean, I've made several career moves, not a ton, um, but I've made several career moves. I wouldn't say necessarily as a result of burnout, but maybe as a result of if this were to continue, I'd be burnt out and I need to do something to make life more sustainable. Me and probably several other psychiatrists work at different treatment settings in order to sort of keep a variety of things. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the one of the problems a lot of psychiatrists have is they just start seeing more and more and more patients. And one of the reasons I built my practice is because I felt like if I just kept piling the patients on, I would get burnt out. So you know, I purposely created a little team and family for myself and for the other providers and frankly for the patients too, so that we can kind of hold all the needs of the patients without me trying to do that all by myself. Do you find that money and resources determine someone who can get well versus not? Because I remember even working with really wealthy clients who had all the resources in the world, but they didn't have that motivation. And then I've worked with people who have no means and literally just end up on Lexapro and, you know, get, become functioning at a higher level. Like it's totally. just, it's interesting, <laughs> this idea of resources and, and also in a, in a world where people believe if they pay more that they're going to get something better. Yes. But in a lot of ways, it's kind of like a Balenciaga sweater. Like people will pay or they did, I don't know, there was a scandal, but let's say they would pay $1,000 for just a black sweater that with white letters that said Balenciaga. Yeah. <laughs> well, in treatment, it's kind of similar. People will pay a lot of money for what could be the same treatment, right? Yeah, or similar treatment. Similar. Sometimes the setting, you know, the, the setting, location's sure. different and whatnot. But, you know, I've had patients that really needed to sort of come down from that place of everything luxury in order to get better. I mean, you know, of celebrities that go to cry help, you know, which right. is more of a behavioral modification model and it's not luxurious at all. Yeah. And then I know of people who really need a very safe sort of individualized setting that's very private and that's the only way they're going to get better. And that's mm. really what they need. So I think the key in psychiatry, and, and this is what makes it very challenging because there's a huge shortage of psychiatrists, but 
the key in mental health in general is like very individualized personal treatment. And in order to do that, you need to figure out what the problem is. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes it's us psychiatrists that are first presented with the problem. Oftentimes it's not, but, but oftentimes we're presented with a problem. And I think all of us need to really be equipped to understand deeply what the problem is. And also we need to understand all the resources around us and what's, you know, what's appropriate fit for the patient and what's not. And that's what, you know, being in LA, I've spent, I've been here 12 years or so, and I've gotten to know every level of care, what, who takes insurance, what's luxury, what's, what's not, you know, and, and where people should go. And, you know, oftentimes family members and patients think they should go somewhere that's very different than where they should be going. Right, right. So, You've always sent patients here to cast centers through the years. Like I remember even way back when you were at Cedars Sinai hospital and we were working together and you're always trying to figure out what's best for the patients or clients you work with. It's funny though. Cause if in meeting you, I wouldn't think you would be a psychiatrist. Like, what would you think I would be? <laughs> what do I think you would be? I think you would be, I, I could think of a few things. One could be an executive in like, music or entertainment or at one of these big social media companies i could see you working strategy for like an organization and you know it's just it's it it, you break kind of the typical stereotype of, of a psychiatrist which i don't know if it's changed but it was predominantly male driven yeah yeah well, thank you for saying that. I wasn't planning on getting so personal, but I guess I will. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'll be honest. I feel like I'm a lot of those things. I mean, we, I work with a lot of entertainment professionals. Um, we do a lot of strategy. And our strategy is really just how do we hold, you know, this massive amount of people with a big problem that are all, you know, dying to get help. Yeah. How do we, how do we create accessibility for them? You know, we have half-fee services at our practice through our PAs and NPs. Um, we work with treatment centers that take insurance. We're doing everything we can. So there is a lot of strategy, which is a lot of fun for me. Um, you know, I, I like I like a lot of things. When I was little, I was going to be an interior designer, and I was going to be on TV, and I was going to be a doctor, and I was going to be a teacher. And I kind of get to do all those things. You know, I designed the office. I, you know, chose the logo for the business, designed right. the website. So I do feel like I do a lot of those things already. <laughs> do you ever find, you don't have to answer how I can speak to it. I find sometimes, and I, I was speaking to a, a friend of mine, there's a guy, David Kessler. He went on the podcast. He writes books about grief. And I find, or I've found, I'm now coming on like 20 years of, of working in mental health. And I don't necessarily do the things for my mental health that I used to do to really, like today I meditated. Mm-hmm. I have this project I really want to see happen. And I also want love. I want to feel loved. I want someone to love me. I'm single right now. And I made a decision that I want love and I want to love someone. And it doesn't have to happen today, but it's it's what I want. And and so I was sitting there meditating on it and and stuff like that. But sometimes I get that like voice in my head that I try to quiet that goes, oh you're not you're not good enough or you know, like, like there's this voice that will tell me I'm being a hypocrite or I'm, I should be more buttoned up or I should. And I, and granted there's periods of time where it doesn't exist, but I find that sometimes it creeps up lately. And I'm like, why is it creeping up after doing this for 20 years? 
Do you find you ever go through phases like that? Yeah, I mean, I think, and I think a lot of successful people have this sort of fraud syndrome feeling. And frankly, like in some ways it can drive us. I think it's important to sort of get to know it and recognize it um, and be aware of it and figure out how to use it as a tool rather than a detriment. Hmm. You know, my feeling is we should always be trying and we should always be working on getting better. And so, you know, turning that voice instead of, you know, a detrimental voice and into an encouraging voice, like, oh, this is here to tell me to keep me on my feet. Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, if we if we know ourselves and recognize ourselves and, and have awareness, like, you've done a lot of things, obviously, in your life. So you, you can't be a failure. It just doesn't make sense, right? right. I, I can't tell you how many people are, you know, the perfect example is when people, this is like cognitive behavioral therapy 101, but people in college are told they have a quiz, you know, and suddenly they think I'm going to fail. I'm the worst. I don't know anything. And then they go back, you go back and you ask them, like, have you ever failed a class? And obviously people have failed classes, mm -hmm. but a lot of times the people who are struggling with these voices are people who haven't. And so, you know, I think looking at your own history, seeing what you've done, and then also, you know, reminding yourself that this, this voice in some ways fueled you and got you there. And if you can just tweak it a little bit and make it sort of a more encouraging voice. Like it's good to keep going. Mm -hmm. um, I, yeah. I think if it comes when there's some degree of insecurity, I I'm with you. I don't know if I've been burnt out, but I pivot a lot. Mm -hmm. So I, I went from like interventions to, you know, having three sober living homes in a center. I'm talking professionally here to working with a huge range of entertainers. Some of them I even brought to your office to then I'm going to Kurdistan, Iraq, because I want to help refugee women to then writing a few books and finding myself to be an author. And I'm in a phase right now where um, I would say I'm, I'm spending more than I make, mm -hmm. which is unusual for me. Mm -hmm. Normally, I'm always just making more. And I'm, so I'm spending more than I make. And typically, I would force myself into making more, but I'm not. Mm. And so I'm, I sometimes I'm just, as I'm sitting there meditating, go, okay, well, the universe isn't going to just drop out of the sky and give you, you know, a bag of money, but I'm trying to do something new. And whenever I'm trying to do something new that, you know, I'm, I don't, I'm not necessarily that great at yet. I think it brings up some insecurity, like, and, and maybe it's like you're saying, it's when that pops up. It's more about having a conversation around like you've been able to do this, you can do this. Yeah, I mean, great things don't get made overnight and or easily or without right. question or despair. And I think like, you know, when I first opened up the business, you were just asking me about my operations person. When I first opened up the business, I was answering the phones myself and operating things myself. I was doing everything. And, um, and I had tons of those discouraging words. And the truth is like, if everyone could just open up a mental health practice easily, they would, they you know, would. it's not easy. It's and not. there's a reason that, you know, people want to work at it and not run it <laughs> because it's not for everyone. It's really challenging and it yeah. does take a hit at, at you. And, um, you know, and I think the, the thing I've been, I'm on the other end of things, I'm trying to like pause the construction and work on stillness. Mm. Um, because there's been, I think so much growth and change in my life for a day. I just turned 40. So I spent my 30s sort of growing, changing, growing, changing, you know, <laughs> build, build, yeah. build, build, build. Yeah. I think if you don't stop and sort of stand still, you can miss, you know, things in life that are quite fragile and won't be here forever. And yeah, so, I would say that's where I'm at. Yeah. It's more the still. Yeah. And not, 
hustling and it's hard if you're used to hustling some people will call that workaholism or perfectionism yeah achieving i found too that connection with others and spending time is like the best magic for any of that empty or awkward or i should you know like the shits oh i should be married i should have kids i should have this i should have that right and then you shit all over yourself yeah and (laughs) so I'm similar where it's trying to be still, but not silly, mm-hmm. you know, like <laughs> be still, but, st- but be more clear. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I look, I pick up my phone and look on social media like the rest of us. And I think so many people are silly. Um, <laughs> there's like, to me, there's like a lack of seriousness mm. these days. And, and what do you mean by that? Like what comes to mind? I just mean like everything's attention grabbing and, you know, what can we do to get your attention for three minutes, you know, and when was the last time you sat down and read a really profound, interesting book, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, so I just think that we've kind of lost touch with, with seriousness, you know, with, with old fashioned values, like honor and respect, self-respect mm. <laughs> And everything's about, you know, what grabs people's attention quickly. And that's sort of the society we're in right now. And I'm personally trying in this next decade of my life to kind of, or at least one day at a time, (laughs) to kind of just sit still and think about what matters and try not to be distracted by all these kind of quick things everywhere. Mm, And that- The noise. The noise. And a lot of that comes down to like, who really matters or, you know, what- what principles really matter and how do I apply them every day, which I'm not saying I'm doing easily. How do you determine that? For me, I think just trying to really make my list smaller, but more important. You know, I, I actually use this trick with patients all the time. It's called the three things list. You know, everyone I know has a million things on their to-do list. And I say, why don't you just pick three today? Mm. Three things that matter. And you really have to think about what what really matters, you know? And that could be making your bed just so that you're kind of respecting your own space and you feel good about, you know, your room being clean, your bed being made. And that can be like, I'm going to make that phone call to that person that, you know, I've been putting off calling for 20 years to say mm-hmm. I'm sorry to. Um, so for me, it's just honing in, in a more focused way and being present in the, for a few things rather than being part of a hundred things. Yeah. You bring <laughs> up a good point because if, if I'm thinking about three things, right, you know, in, in life or my own life, you know, because, uh, I'm competing. I don't, I don't know if I told you, I started doing jujitsu a lot oh, and I compete. Oh, cool. So it's a fight. It's a real fight. And yeah. I'm competing at what's called the pans in Orlando in three weeks. Oh, wow. So one decision, and I wrote a book called One Decision, but one deci- one decision on the list would be to eat healthy mm-hmm. the rest of the day. And when we when we go a little more um, less macro and micro, yes, by the end of the day, I could eat healthier so I can stay on that. Sometimes it's hard to determine what else is important, you know, and and because it's like okay, I should think that calling my mom is, sorry, mom, <laughs> but is that really what's, you know, important today? And I, I like what you're saying about that because it really makes you think about how to cut back on what's not. Yeah. I find in this town in particular, because I've had a lot of friends leave during COVID, mm. 
who love that they left Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I haven't met one person who moved out of Los Angeles who regret it. Oh, interesting. Not one. I haven't. <laughs> and I, I live here, but I've not met one. And, and they all say, because there's less noise, mm. you're not bombarded with a lot of things that maybe don't matter. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I, I think there's ways to make anywhere less noisy or more noisy, you know, and sometimes the noise is in our own heads and mm -hmm. not outside our doorstep. Like I lived in New York for a period and I thought, found New York to be incredibly noisy, too noisy for me. Right. <laughs> um, which it, it is noisy, right? Here, I, I think because you can more easily access nature, although, you know, you have the park in New York, you have places to do it. I, you know, I think if you sit down and you're get also on still, the west side of LA. That's true. The west side's very different. <laughs> I did find the noise decrease. Yeah, you're a more bunch by Santa I Monica, Marina Del Rey. Down, yeah, when I moved it's down like, there, yeah. That's like it, it that's <laughs> like um it's almost like uh LA but kind of not in a way like true, uh, but it's still wherever you go it there is, you are. No, no, wherever you <laughs> wherever you go there you are and wherever you go, it's it's about how do you shut off the noise. I've thought about taking a total social media break. I know a lot of yeah, people do it and I've, I've thought that. about doing it. I, it was, it was amazing when I did it. I almost think how amazing it would be to just get rid of a cell phone. I know. Like <laughs> remember back when we didn't have cell phones? Yes. <laughs> and you were kind of stuck with your own thoughts and you listened to the radio. It was really nice. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of the patients I see a, a good number of them, especially the recovery guys are doing these silent 10 day retreats and whatnot. It's just, I can't even imagine what that might must be I can't like. either. <laughs> yeah, I think having no cell phone would be difficult. Yeah. But social media, it, it, I, I recommend that all the time, taking social media breaks. And, you know, people just get into modes of compare and despair, you know, and it, it's... Explain. What, just constantly looking at what they could have or what they should be and not focusing on themselves and, the, and their own goals. And I have to tell you, it's actually quite difficult to get off Instagram. <laughs> I heard of a therapist, um, hi, Jesse, if you're listening, uh, who told one of his patients, just give me the password. I'm going to change your password because it's too hard to go through all the steps of getting off of it. Right. Um, but I did, I did do that once before. And, um, and I actually have a wildly different approach now to social media personally than I used to Tell since me. doing that. Well, I just, I completely deleted my account. And then everybody who I added personally, I mean, we have a work account, but I have a personal account. It's just close to me in my inner circle and that's it, you mm. know? And I don't have the, I don't have all the, the junk that I used to have, but I also don't look at it as much because I, you know, learned life without it was much better, frankly, for me. Yeah. Um. So I think, just looking at the things in our lives that we spend a lot of time on and trying to, you know, hone in on the purpose of them and using them for only that purpose. You know, for me, it's like in some ways a, a little memory book and scrapbook, mm -hmm. you know, of important times and days and things that I want to remember, but it's not much more than that. Right. But social media is used, you know, widely by people for all sorts of reasons. So I think just looking at what are your goals, what's important to you and what's the purpose of it and sort of everything we do. No small task. But. Yeah, I, I found, I, and I talked about this on a podcast before, I, there's YouTube videos of like, and I told Suzanne Wallach this, your friends with Suzanne, who was my last episode on borderline personality disorder. And I was talking to her about this video I saw on YouTube that was a psychiatrist explains borderline personality disorder. But the psychiatrist on YouTube literally looked like he was 26 years old. Did it, literally, it looked like he was looking off to a screen 
where he was giving the different there was no like heart of like you know you know when someone's like worked with a population they don't need anything on a screen maybe they have a few notes of what they want to talk about millions of views yeah and it wasn't even good information yeah it wasn't even accurate and i was watching and you look in the comments and people are like thank you so much yeah and and it's kind of it's interesting because i think a lot of great psychiatrists actually don't want to have that much attention or so it's this weird paradigm where everyone uses google or social media and then the people who are dying to be seen are the voices of psychiatry yeah yeah i mean the spreading of misinformation or just very limited fast information um is obviously rampant and wild and that's what i mean about sort of the the lack of seriousness in today's culture like at least, sure, we used to be sort of guided by um, the news stations, right? But at least they'd get an expert on TV mm-hmm. that, you know, wrote 10 books and was a Harvard professor or something. Right. And nowadays, you know, many it's more Talking pe- heads. Yeah, many more people can be reached by, you know, people who know nothing. I mean, I can't tell you how many patients I have coming in that think they have autism because they saw it on TikTok, you know? Mm. Um, and maybe, maybe there's something to what they're learning, but... That is not a way a diagnosis is made. Even if, if I have a chart on my, in my photos um, that I that I think about sometimes, it's the and and nothing against nurse practitioners or PAs. I have some great ones in my practice, but the amount of training that they have versus a doctor, it's like a twentieth or something. It shows mm-hmm. you the hours. Um, oh, you have a graph of that. Yeah, I have a you graph gotta, of that. Gotta I got to show you. Yeah, and you know it's great if they're trained by a psychiatrist directly for a while. But what's happening is. There's tons of private equity money being poured into all of these quick mental health companies. Oh, I because by the way, I can't with the mental health online. The startups, yeah. Oh so, my God. so there and there aren't there aren't psychiatrists who want to work there because frankly, there's a huge shortage of us, and all of us could probably have our own practices and do quite well. So most of us are not working for those companies. So then they're going down to PAs and NPs, a lot of which have- Because that became a new thing in California where PAs could prescribe, they couldn't before. You know, PAs can prescribe and- or nurse practitioners can nurse practitioners can fully be on their own now. I don't now, even know yeah. that they need supervision. Correct. I could be wrong about that, but I think they don't. They may not even need supervision. I think that's what they're fighting for now. But, but supervision, frankly, has become like try to pay a doctor to oversee it, and some of the doctors don't care at all and just collect some money for it, and some are very invested. So, you know, it. What worries me is that there's all these startups trying to fix the mental health crisis, and there's all this money being poured in, but they're a lot of them are being run by people who are money people and who are not mental health experts. And then the actual clinicians do not have a vast, you know, history of, of seeing a ton of patients in the yeah, mental there's health a huge, arena. There's a huge disconnect between media and actually what's being done in mental health. Like May is mental health awareness month, right? Mm-hmm. Which, you know, people make the month something and you, we're going to see this May a ton of stuff out there a lot of it is through pharmaceutical companies or or what have you and they the information that's out there is not even from the very providers that are providing they're like spokespeople for mental health Mm -hmm. like even harry prince harry like doing a whole mental health series and i think it was on netflix i saw it i I couldn't get through the whole thing but i don't know and i have nothing against him or whatever but I just think it's odd. You know, you struggled, you struggled with your mental health. Now we're just, and, and that will get more attention than research or that will get more attention 
than what's getting done day to day. I just, the disconnect is wild. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a simple, a simple example was like breast cancer awareness, right? Like, you know, a few important people were getting breast cancer and speaking out about it. And then organizations were being paid for it. And then there's more research in it and there's money, more, yeah. more money in it, more attention to it. Great. The same thing, we are in this sort of revolution when it comes to mental health. And it, and it's great. Like UCLA, I forgot what year, but UCLA had a goal. I think it was by 2030, they want to, to have the cure for depression. Okay. Right. And if we look at other diseases like HIV AIDS, for example, we have cures, you know, with right. people who are non-detectable now. We, we have a lot of innovations in medicine that get us to places we never thought we'd be. And that's wonderful. And I'm glad that we're getting this kind of attention to mental health. I just hope that it's going into research and development. I hope, I hope the money's going into the right hands mm-hmm. um, because one of the problems I'm seeing is that, you know, the, the money is going into these startups to treat people, but these startups are like, do you get nervous when you're public speaking? Like, come here and we're going to- No, I know. Mad. But there's usually a much bigger problem. I mean, you don't, you don't go to a cardiologist or to a company that just specializes in high blood pressure. You go to a cardiologist that knows everything about the heart. Right. Right. And so it worries me that there's, there's these companies that are just doing psychedelics or they're just doing antidepressants or they're just doing ADHD meds and they're really missing. I mean, oftentimes one symptom is a part of a a greater thing and it can be anything from a thyroid problem to a head injury to ADHD to depression to whatever addiction and if we're not looking at people more globally, I mean, we're already so specialized in medicine. Hmm. And what's happening now is all the funding is going to these like hyper-specialized areas because you can make a quick buck. And, you know, I think we're just sort of missing the craft of looking at mental health as a whole yeah. um, and the person as a whole. So I hope that we can stay focused in that way of sort of doing things with a little bit more seriousness. Yeah, we'll I, th- I think <laughs> I think it's more um, doing things that are more about what's right than clicks or hits or you know it's like it's just so strange to me i, I mean I've, I've spoke about it a lot on this podcast i think celebrity is such a strange phenomenon and i think it's very strange when you put a celebrity even though i've historically have done some things and i can't say i did them right but when it's it just, it's just, it's just so weird. Like, do the pharmaceutical companies all come after you to speak and get in there? Like, how does that work? How does a pharma company suddenly get you to prescribe their med? It's a good question. I mean, so I actually do speak for two different pharma companies, and they're two companies with medications that I feel very strongly are wildly different than other medications, and that sort of solve a big problem, and that people did not know or do not know a lot about. But yeah, it is weird that this is the way we learn. But like one of the one of the medications, I'll, I'll talk talk about each of them. One of them, the entire company, I feel, and I've know I've worked with them for a long time. Every single person has has somebody in their family or close to them that they have struggled with addiction, and they're like super passionate about fixing the opiate and alcohol crisis. So that's one. And then another medication. What kind of medicine is it? That's an opiate blocker. Got um, it. And then another medication is for a movement disorder related to schizophrenia. And, you know, in learning in depth about the company, the this medication has taken, I don't know, 30, maybe somewhere between 30 and 50, I don't even know, years to develop through neuroscientists that were focused on Huntington's disease and specific movement disorders. And I, and I, you know, have so much respect for people who spend their lives trying to solve one big problem. Right. 
Um, and the amount of work, having been assigned, being a scientist, you know, and seeing how much work goes into research and development and whatnot. So it's interesting because I think, you know, we have the FDA, which is the most stringent sort of regulatory body when it comes to medications here in the state. So we all complain about big pharma, but we have the FDA regulating. We have, you know, neuroscientists putting tons of heart and hours, not getting paid extravagant amounts, amounts of money. Um, and then we have doctors hired to educate other doctors, which I think that is a good way to be educating. But some of these medications I hear about from a pharma rep. I don't hear about it. You know, I'd have to take time out and go to conferences all the time mm. to hear about all the new psych meds. There's a brand new psych med that works more on the NMDA receptors. As I talked about at the beginning, we were so focused on serotonin and norepinephrine and dopamine for so long. And now we have all these other new approaches and the psychedelics happening and it's good. It's just, it's good that we have these new developments. It's just, it's a little bit bizarre that it, you know, comes to us through a company. But what I like to remember is the company the foundation of the company, we hope, you know, is is science and innovation and trying to move forward with curing, you know, in, in this case, a part of the body that we still have a ton of answers out there, you mm. know, to be found. So I don't think that whole thing has to be bad. It's just what's driving the companies to to make this medication. Sometimes it's a family member, you right. know. And sometimes it's money. <laughs> so you're you're so what's the best way people can find you or learn about your outpatient if they're really wanting customized care? Yeah. So our website is called themomenthealth.com and our practice is called the moment or the moment health. And only because you didn't ask, but <laughs> only because it's a reminder to me and to everybody to to be present mm. and to be still, as we talked about. So yeah, you can find us at that website or on Instagram. Yeah, happy to help out. The Moment Health. Yeah, themomenthealth.com. All right, well, Stacy, thanks for connecting with me. And thanks for being my first psychiatrist. Yeah, thank you for having me. Friend to talk and riff with me. Everyone go check out The Moment Health, especially if you're looking for some really customized care. You know, at Cast Centers, we, I was telling Dr. Cohen before she came in that we're been primarily insurance so people come here to use their insurance and if someone's really we're we're we do as great a job as we can creating customized care under what insurance tells us we have to do because that's what the insurance companies do they tell you what you have to do and you have to fit into it so we do that to the best of our ability but some people just don't even want to go that route and that's really when you want to go to dr cohen's facility to get really customized care so till next time keep it magical